From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. A taxi driver, Rodney William Woodgate, 23, was found murdered in his taxi on Old Cornell Road on Wednesday afternoon. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and little sonic mysteries we find all over the world. On the air, the internet, we listen to everything we can get our ears on and bring you the best of what we hear each week on ReSound. When I was about 11 or 12, we asked our mother how Uncle Rodney had died because some of us thought he'd died because he was sick. Sandra Wilson? Yes. Police, can we come in? In Australia, a woman named Sandra Wilson is known for many things. She established the first halfway house for women coming out of prison. She was a consultant on a popular TV series and, inadvertently, a touchstone in the gay rights movement. She was also, in the late 70s, the longest-serving female prisoner in New South Wales. The crime that landed her in prison made big headlines. She was instantly famous and notorious. When Wilson died in 1999, she left behind an unpublished memoir and a slew of personal papers. From these sources, producer Catherine Frayne tells the story of Wilson's life. Just a note before we begin. You'll hear the actual voice of Sandra Wilson from an interview Frayne dug up in the archives of the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You'll also hear selections from Wilson's unpublished memoir, read by actor Linda Cropper. Here is Tit for Tat, the story of Sandra Wilson. On the main street of Paddington, I waited for a cab to drive by. I had the strange feeling that my purpose was etched all over my face. One taxi saw me but continued straight on. I looked after him, thinking how lucky he was. A second cab passed and saw me. It started to stop but then accelerated away. The third cab stopped. silent for most of the way. Then a feeling of pity for the man overcame me. He seemed a nice fellow. He didn't pass the time in idle talk, nor seemed to feel that because he had a female passenger that he could make the annoying invitations that other drivers did. He appeared to be a really nice boy, and I felt a great sorrow for him. The miles flew by. We were rapidly approaching our destination. The landscape was unfamiliar, and he wondered whether we were at the right turn-off. He stopped the car and pulled out his road map. He sat, his face in profile, his eyes resting on the map. Then I sent a command to my body. Now! Sydney Morning Herald, 1st of May, 1959. Mounted police in search for taxi killer, sand dunes combed. A taxi driver, Rodney William Woodgate, 23, was found murdered in his taxi on Old Cornell Road on Wednesday afternoon. Detectives last night were trying to find a motive for the killing, 
They believe robbery may not have been behind Woodgate's death. When I was about 11 or 12, we asked our mother how Uncle Rodney had died because some of us thought he'd died because he was sick and some of us thought that he had been killed in the war. So we asked Mum and that's when she told us that he'd been murdered. We were told that he was murdered by a woman who was called Sandra and I remember that Mum told us that she had a mental illness and then I remember Dad telling us at some stage that she thought that society owed her something, so she wanted to take it out on a man, so she went after a man who was young and good-looking, and she picked up Uncle Rodney, Rodney's taxi. A young woman who shot a courteous and good-looking taxi driver because he was the type of man she wanted to kill was yesterday found not guilty of murder on the grounds of mental illness. In the Central Criminal Court, Mr Justice Wallace directed that the woman, Sandra Andrea Kane Wilson, 21, be kept in strict custody during the Governor's pleasure. Detective Clark of the CIB said that when Wilson gave herself up, she told him she believed she was a misfit in life and wanted to shoot somebody to square things up. She then intended to commit suicide, but found she did not have the courage. At the trial, government psychiatrist Dr McGeorge said he believed that Wilson was mentally ill and had been incapable of reasoning about the killing of Woodgate. Her defence of insanity was not contested by the Crown. So this is the psych centre. So um, Sandra was imprisoned here. Uh, she was a criminally insane patient. She was a PUD, a prisoner under detention here. In fact, the majority of her 18 years of imprisonment under the auspices of the Department of Corrective Services was right here. Do you have any idea which parts of the building were used for what? Um, I think she was in Ward 2. Now that's just, uh, we go through this doorway here, so let's get up and I'll take through this. My name is Denise Nicholas. I was in Parramatta with Sandra, Parramatta Psych. I was in Ward 2 with Sandra. Sandra was in the locked ward. She was in the room nearly all the time. She was never allowed out in the yard. And I was just a friend. She was a friend of mine. Ward 2 and 3, very long wards. And up the top floor there, uh, there were 16 cells, lock-up cells. Hopefully this door will be open and we'll be able to walk through into that area. I rarely had human contact in the first months. Eyes at peepholes, a flash of white uniforms waltzing past, but none looking in and none stopping. She never had lunch with us. She never had tea with us. Sandra was never outside. That's how dangerous they thought she was. The other two prisoners were out in the grounds with us. Sandra never was. Sandra was in the dormitory, always. I was locked up in a cell. Tablets were shoved down my throat, which didn't agree with me, which made my behaviour quite manic, aggressive, violent. It took them six years to find out they were giving me the wrong medication. Do you know what the medication was that they were giving you? Like Actor. 
and that is um, changes your behaviour. Some people react adversely. You either become totally tranquilised, meek and mild and gentle, or you go off your head. And I went off my head. I know Sandra went off the rails quite a lot, but I don't blame her going off the rails. It was the only way to get your frustration out. What was? By getting angry and putting your fist through a window. Or... That was the only way that she could get her frustration out. Did she ever hurt other, other patients? I'm not saying. I don't want to say that. Seventeenth of December, nineteen sixty-seven. SW kicked patient MB in abdomen during changeover of staff. Doctor D notified patient to have two Librium capsules at night as necessary. It was hard. The nurses were hard. You did anything wrong, they'd give you a needle like called peraldehyde. And when you had peraldehyde had come through the pores of your skin, it stunk. And they couldn't give it to you in a plastic syringe, they'd have to give it to you in a glass syringe, because you put it in plastic syringe, it would melt the syringe. 16 July, 1965. SW studying in her own room with door locked, as ordered. Pleasant and helpful. You've actually got her notebooks from the prison years, do you? Yes. Yeah. The notebooks themselves are fascinating because they give an insight into the kinds of things she was interested in. Rebecca Jennings is a historian working through Sandra Wilson's personal papers and her unpublished memoir. She also was very committed to her studies considering she had had a fairly interrupted education. Um, but she continued to study for her leaving certificate and for a degree. She studied a large number of languages while in prison and also various ancient scripts. She also collected information on science, poetry, um, and did ultimately achieve several qualifications. So, yeah, she was clearly an intelligent person and clearly somebody who valued knowledge. Gently, gently fall her tears. Gently, gently I don't think she saw much of any psychiatrists during that period. The day-to-day -day care was provided by the nursing staff and um, I think their primary concern was to keep everybody ticking over rather than to actually treat any underlying conditions. You spent how long in the psychiatric centre altogether? Oh, 12 years altogether. In fact, actually what happened, a doctor was there about 18 months and he made noises. He said, look, I think you're sane. What about if we start sanity proceedings? I said, look, how long are you going to stay here in the job? He said, well, my kids, I don't like moving them from school to school. I'm going to stay. I said, right, you can start. The final sticking point was the issue of whether or not she continued to pose a threat to society. And that was obviously quite a difficult question to answer while she was in a, a mental hospital. 
So after these questions and the board, then what happened? Oh, well, actually, right in the middle of it, I shot through. In 71, I shot through, and um, you see, they were threatening to take the book off me. I was starting the manuscript even then. I had superintendent's permission. And the ward charge thought, oh, you know, it's not too good. Sandy's getting a little bit emotional, you know, as she's reliving events, and she wanted to punish me for this and take the book off me, and... I shot through a window and made a bit of a jump and went off with the book, posted it off, the penguin. So after that, they said, well, she didn't harm anyone outside, um, didn't panic the nation. So, um, you know, we'll, we'll cover, we'll cover. And they did. Gently, gently fall the tears. Gently, gently all the Gently, gently hear her cry. Even though Sandra Wilson was declared sane in 1971, her period of incarceration was far from over. She was transferred from Parramatta Psychiatric Centre to Mullawa Women's Prison, where she would serve another seven years and where her cause would be taken up by the Women Behind Bars movement. But before we unlock the Mullawa chapter, let's open the pages of that manuscript Sandra Wilson referred to, the one she escaped in order to post to a publisher. It never did get published in Sandra's lifetime, but she worked on it for the rest of her life. Historian Rebecca Jennings is now editing the memoir for publication. She was born to working-class parents in Sydney in 1939, so both her parents were in the armed services, and as a result she was brought up by her grandparents in Punchbowl in Sydney. After the war was over, her parents came back and claimed her, but I think she was actually happier with her grandparents in some way. She had formed a closer bond with them um, and she found it difficult to relate, particularly to her father. And I think there was a fair amount of conflict in their relationship. Was she the victim of child abuse? On a few occasions, yes. Not in any repeated sense by the same person, but she describes a number of incidents in which strange men in public places, in the cinema, in the park, abused her and also one distant family member on one occasion. And I think that did contribute to the way that she felt about both men and adults. She describes losing trust with adults. So that was sexual abuse? Yeah. I think there were small periods, perhaps when she was in relationships in her younger life that she seemed fairly happy. There was a point at which she stayed in a Salvation Army youth hostel in her late teens um, where she was in a, a group of friends and I think she seemed relatively happy there. But throughout her early life there seemed to be this tension between wanting to find somebody and to fall in love and form a relationship but being unable to do so. A lot of the behavioural issues that she exhibited could be traced back to the social pressures of being a lesbian in a society in which there was extreme social disapproval of same-sex desire. 
There was in our group a young girl named Barbara, very nice, but so quiet we scarcely heeded her. One night after tea, I suggested we all go up to my mother's home in Paddington to listen to our classical music at an appropriate volume. Thankfully, Mum was out, so there would be no interruptions. Five or six of us crowded into the small lounge area where we squatted on the floor. I put the record on and turned out the lights. As I sat down, I found myself sitting next to Barbara and my hand bumped hers in the dark. I apologised. That's all right, she replied, and took my hand in hers. In the dark, I smiled to myself, gave her hand a quick squeeze, then settled back to enjoy the music, in addition to this unexpected pleasure. Before long, I became conscious that Barbara was stroking my hand as she held it. I visited her each night. It wasn't long before the lack of privacy due to the thin walls at the hostel began to worry us. We found a flat for rent at Bondi Beach and moved in, despite the high cost. Sandra Wilson? Yes? Police, can we come in? We've received a complaint that you're living here with another girl. You have a friend named Tanya, don't you? You wrote a letter to her recently. Her mother read the letter. She notified us. Now, you can't try to deny you're a homosexual because the letter states quite plainly that you are and that you're living with this other girl as man and wife. You're charged with having been exposed to moral danger. How do you plead? Was lesbianism a crime, per se? Well, technically not. The most fascinating aspect of the story for me and the the issue which really drew me in was this issue of the precise legal standing of lesbianism in New South Wales in those post-war decades. There was no legislation against same-sex desire between women. There was between men, but not between women. But having said that, I think Sandra Wilson's story really demonstrates the extent to which the police and the justice system were able to persecute lesbians in that period and also the way in which members of the public regarded it as illegal and and Sandra herself in her teenage years thought that the behaviour that she was carrying out was against the law. I think part of that was about the fact that so little was discussed about lesbianism in this period. It was really a taboo subject that wasn't raised in any public forum and because of that people just really didn't know what the situation was and it created an environment in which there was a huge amount of pressure on women to conceal the way that they felt. And I think for Sandra that was what the main difficulty was. She she wasn't the sort of person who was able to conceal her feelings when she felt strongly about somebody. She wanted to tell everybody about it. And in that society that really wasn't the best way to survive. The first teacher with whom I fell in love was rather self-controlled. Dear Sandra... This is just a short note to thank you for the lovely little present you sent me. I will always remember you by it. I do hope you're doing well at school and at the same time are enjoying yourself. Don't forget that high school depends on the efforts of this year. The second teacher I fell in love with was different. She allowed me to walk home with her 
but I was finally able to let on to her how much I cared, the type of relationship I would like. My feelings were becoming open now and not being repressed. I felt as an adult and with the strength of an adult. And she didn't reject me, just my age. She told me to come back in five years if I still felt the same way. And I would have if I hadn't been in a detention centre. All these bashings of young girls are alleged to have occurred behind these walls, the century-old Parramatta girls' home. For decades now, there have been continuous allegations of bashings and continuous promises of inquiries from the Child Welfare Department. What kind of girls end up in Parramatta? Most of the girls were in for sexual moral offences, meaning they were having sex under the legal age of consent. Even girls who had experienced incestuous advances from family members were put away inside to keep them safe. The name of this institution was the Girls' Industrial and Training School. The whole principle being that girls would come here, they would be trained, their moral behaviour would be trained in housewife skills, domestic skills, things like that, to make them good wives and mothers or servants. That was the whole idea. And by doing all those things, that would stop them from having aberrant sexual behaviour. So, yeah. Girls have lovers in there, in Parramatta. They scratch for girls, stick pins in for girls, you know, as a lesbian way. And I don't... Scratch on your skin yeah, and stick pins in your skin. Mm -hmm. And things like that. And, um, I don't understand that, I must admit. You don't? What, well, why would you stick a pin in yourself because you love someone? To prove that you love it. A girl, that's, a, that's the way it goes in Parramatta. Every girl makes herself a set of fine underclothing and a smart frock which she will wear on discharge. Parramatta is a school. In the classroom, Valerie learns to read books that show her new standards she can apply to her own life. There was an anger within me which kept on growing until one day I stormed off to the furnace room and whacked my right fist through one of its windows. My hand was bandaged in the hospital clinic room and I was escorted to the isolation room. I was to remain there for three weeks until my transfer to a mental hospital could be arranged. As a homosexual, I was more a psychiatric problem than a criminal one. The mental hospital chosen for me was at Gladesville, where I would remain under the jurisdiction of the Children's Court. Unexpectedly, her period in Gladesville Mental Hospital in her teenage years was actually one of the happiest periods of her life. She seemed very comfortable there. Up until that point, she'd been experiencing a lot of conflict with society in general about her sexuality. But because it had been acknowledged in the court system and so on that she was a homosexual, when she went to the mental hospital, it was known to the staff. So I think she felt more comfortable and more able to be herself in a way than she had done in wider society. Even when looking out the recreation room window and wondering what the world was like out there, I knew instinctively that I wouldn't be so happy in it. 
and that prejudice would return with all its sadness once I was outside this secure environment. Sandra Wilson spent most of 1954 confined at Gladesville Mental Hospital. Four years later, at the age of 20, she chose to return to this kind of environment, this time not as a patient, but as a trainee psychiatric nurse. Her own mental health was fragile, though, and within six short months she'd find herself unravelling, to the point of committing a crime so serious that she would be declared criminally insane. Rebecca Jennings takes up the story. She wanted to be a psychiatric nurse, partly because she had felt so comfortable at Gladesville Hospital, um, but also because she thought that it was an environment in which she was likely to meet another woman that she could form a relationship with. And she did. When she was a trainee psychiatric nurse, she began a relationship with another trainee nurse. And that lasted for quite a few months throughout their period of training. But it was also an environment in which she was under a huge amount of pressure. There was constant supervision of our activities, even during our own free time. Our lights had to be out by 10 o'clock at night, or we could be reported to the matron's office. The night nurse knocked on the door of all staff rostered on duty. Anyone not responding could be reported as being absent without leave. And this became the start of my problems, my real problems, for I was rarely in my own room. And in addition to that, of course, there was the fact that she was a former mental patient herself, which she had concealed from the hospital authorities when applying for the job. So she also needed to hide that aspect of her history. I started to disintegrate, despite being aware of the irony that I was wearing the uniform of a mental nurse at a time when I was maybe more mental than any of my charges. Ultimately, she was basically told that they wanted her to leave, that that they didn't think that it was working, that they didn't think that she was interacting well with the other staff. So she left, but maintained the relationship with this fellow nurse. Norma? Hello, love. Sorry to disturb you so late, but I'm in the area just outside the hospital. Just thought I'd drop by and see you for a minute. Sandra, I can't see you anymore. Norma, what did you just say? I'm sorry, but I can't see you anymore. What happened? Did Devlin get onto you? Did they pressure you? Has the doctor been having a go at you? Tell me what happened, please. Why did you change your mind? Please don't ask. I can't tell you. I honestly can't tell you why. Have they hurt you? Are they threatening to sack you? Sandy, if the majority of people are against it, it must be wrong. But you said you loved me. I can't talk about it. I can't explain it. I'm so terribly confused. It was that situation, that loss of that relationship, which really tipped her over the edge. I was conscious of the brightness of the sunshine hitting the leaves on passing trees, of the bright colours of the clothes of other pedestrians. I wondered whether they knew they were passing a dead person, for I was dead. I had only to shut down the outside machine to be completely dead. She initially considered committing suicide, but decided that society wouldn't miss her. Nobody would cry if she died, but that she wanted society to realise the pain that she'd gone through. So she decided that what she needed to do was take the life of somebody else, somebody who was a representative in a way of society. So she began to plan to kill somebody. 
but who should I kill? There was no single person at whom I could point my finger and say, there lies the blame. The only choice left to me was to pick out a single member of society. I had lost, and now society was to lose. Tit for tat. She'd had a bad experience a few years before on a taxi journey that she'd taken on her way to visit a previous ex-girlfriend. And so she decided that a taxi driver was somebody who would represent the way in which society had mistreated her. I was reminded of the other time I was catching a taxi to Central and of that poxed-up wog cab driver who was putting the hard word on me. Feelings started to flood back into the numbness and I knew who the person would be. It would be a cab driver. Girl on taxi murder charge. Sydney Morning Herald, 6th of May, 1959. A 20-year-old nurse was charged at Central Police Station last night with the murder of Rodney William Woodgate, 23, of Bennett Street, Waverley. Woodgate, a taxi driver, was found dead in his taxi in the Sandhills near Kernell on April 29. He had been shot through the head. Detectives questioned a girl last night at CIB headquarters. Just before midnight, she was taken to Central Police Station and charged. She will appear in court this morning. I'm Katrina Woodgate and I'm the eldest niece of Rodney Woodgate. Uncle Rodney was a university student. He was studying engineering at the University of New South Wales when he was murdered. And he was driving a taxi. It was a part-time job to earn some money. Extended family members have told us about his personality. He was a very warm and a particularly delightful person and he was the youngest in the family, about 10 years younger than my father and I know that Dad looked after him when he was a baby. Dad used to get up to him during the night. It's interesting just looking at the newspaper reports from the time. The family seemed to have really kept a distance from the media at that time. They didn't express any sort of anger or desire for vengeance. Why not? How do you explain that? Um, I just don't think they ever would have done anything like that. They wouldn't have wanted to attract any publicity. Also because my father and my grandfather were both solicitors, perhaps they would have thought that it was best to be quite discreet about everything and it would have been terribly painful. Mr J.B. Kearney for Woodgate's relatives told the coroner a curious feature of the case was that Wilson was engaged for some time at Rydalmere as a psychiatric nurse. My client feels the evidence does appear to infer there should be some investigation or check by the authorities of the background of nurses engaged in that type of nursing, he said. Her experience there appears to be a feature which led to some inward disturbance and to this tragedy. In one report, I think, speaking through their legal counsel, they referred to it as a tragedy. Um, I think a lot of people would have described it in different terms. Mm. Yes. Well, it is a tragedy. It's terrible. It's a, besides being a terrible tragedy for, in our family, for the family of Rodney, it is a terrible tragedy for someone who's mentally ill. The mental illness is tragic in itself. In a letter written to Anne Summers by Sandra Wilson uh, mm -hmm. from prison, she wrote this in 1976, I think Anne Summers had expressed interest in her case and wanted to help support the campaign for her release. And so Sandra Wilson was writing down, just in point form, 
her story, like what had happened, what had led to this point. And she wrote, at the coroner's court, I saw his brother, she's referring to Rodney Woodgate's brother, and he seemed to be camp. Of all the people I had to pick in the world, I had picked one who would most probably have understood best of all. What's your response to that? Well, no, they're not, they weren't camp at all, but they would have been well-dressed. And I guess it might have been my father, I'm not sure. But, yeah, they were professional people and they would have been well-dressed. And um, they were, I suppose, quite sensitive types. Um, I think also that, you know, my father in particular, my experience of my father's family has been that they had a great respect for women and women were treated with greater quality. So thinking about it, I think it's sort of quite ironic that she randomly selected Uncle Rodney and then, you know, and he came from such a family. I'm Wendy Bacon. Well, these days I'm a professor of journalism at UTS, but in those days I was an activist for women behind bars. And I was also before that a campaigner against censorship. So I met Sandra, I think, when I was in prison in the beginning of 1972. Yes, she was very straight, you could say very, in some ways, very conservative in style very institutionalised, but clearly at that point sane, probably still very unhappy because she was locked up for a start, but sane, you know, I could have a good conversation with her and she told me a bit about her story. In 76, I met Wendy Bacon from Women Behind Bars. They started visiting me. We started talking and we started planning. Why would a sane person who was not guilty still be in prison? And that was the simple question that we started off with. And they'd sort of say, look, uh, is it all right? Look, we're going to have a street demonstration uh, two weeks' time. We're going to uh, get outside the Good Cell building in Chifley Square. We're going to just squat. Uh, we want to take the issue to court and say that they're holding you illegally. And that's when things started to happen. This area in which we meet today is almost a microcosm of the foundations of Australia. The court, the barracks, the church, the rum hospital, and fittingly, across the way, the race course, now Hyde Park. And as the Commonwealth State Law Courts building, it symbolises our march from colony to state to nation when did things begin to change then? When the girls hit the streets, when the girls hit all the public buildings with the black spray paint, I mean, it might have caused some inconvenience to some citizens in getting it all erased but it did create a lot of public discussion. It meant the newspapers carried the story. It meant that people started writing into the department. People got on TV and they, you know, sort of pushed the issue. I do remember talking to Sandra about the 
tactics of the campaign. And, you know, I think it did go against the grain for her. I don't think she wanted, you know, she was wary. But I think she also saw that we were thinking of a whole range of angles. And, you know, we were really also looking out for her in very practical ways, you know, and things like organising courses for her, trying to do something about her writing. And so however much she may have seen us on television as these, like, total rat bags. In practice, she experienced this, I think, in a fairly different way for that. You know, there was nothing violent about it. We were just um, executing our right to civil disobedience. Six years ago, a panel of government psychiatrists concluded that Sandra Wilson was now sane, and yet they confined her to Mallow Women's Prison where she has spent the last six years. Sandra Wilson has applied for parole every year since then, and every year it's been rejected. Never with a reason given. Sandra Wilson can stay in prison until she dies unless something is done, and that's what we're planning to do. If anybody's interested in obtaining a leaflet, we've got also, at that stage, there was a quite a, a big movement developing around gay liberation issues. So, in a sense, we had an audience there as well, not just an audience, but people who would sort of take up that point and argue that point. So, partly we were saying she has been a victim of discrimination, but also that she was going out into a very different world where it was possible to be a homosexual with dignity. So her homosexuality and discrimination against her because of that was definitely part of the campaign. And in a sense, we were rediscovering the original story. Nothing but misery again. When Sandra comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. In some ways it must have been a hard campaign because there was a very innocent victim of Sandra Wilson's crime. It was 17 years earlier. How did the victim and his family come into the debate or come into your considerations? Well, I, I actually believe that people are tried through the courts and they um, receive a punishment. In this case, there was a very, very severe punishment, although she was mentally ill at the time. I think in sentencing and in thinking about prisons and victims, it's really important to keep the victims separate. I think in our particular family, there was a, quite a bit of discussion at the time about it because it was in the newspapers and I think there were probably some family members who were concerned about her release. And in 1978, I moved to Sydney at the age of 22 to start a new job with a company who were based in Glebe. And of course, I arrived in Glebe to find graffiti with free Sandra Wilson painted in various places in Glebe Point Road. And I remember finding it quite confronting and um, quite disturbing, really. It wasn't very nice for a family member to be, you know, seeing all of that. If women behind bars hadn't taken up your case, I'd still be in jail. On the 29th of April, 1959, Sandra Wilson shot a taxi driver. He was a complete stranger to her, and she killed him while mentally disturbed over the outcome of a lesbian love affair. Ten days ago, 18 years after committing the crime, Sandra was released, having earned the dubious distinction of being the longest-serving woman prisoner in New South Wales. 
What's it like being out? It's quite incredible. I still can't quite believe it all. It still feels like a dream that I'm going to wake up in the morning back in Mullawa and you know, sort of think what a beautiful dream it was. Some of it must be hard to get used to after 18 years. Not really. I, I prepared for this moment all the time. Um, except the fact that um, I, I, I didn't expect to miss the place. <laughs> And I did. I'm Tony Vinson and uh, a one-time head of the Department of Corrective Services in New South Wales. My contact with Sandra Wilson really occurred after my period of service, which was 1979-1981, and my contact with Sandra was really around the halfway house that she'd established in Enmore for uh, women coming out of prison. Uh, Sandra Wilson, who's recently started a halfway house for women and is a guest with us this morning for the first time. Welcome, Sandra. Mm. Thank you for joining us. Oh, look, I think uh, she was such a determined uh, person. Whatever else might or might not be said about her character, she was really keen to be of assistance to people coming out of the institution. You see, when people are released from prison, um, they have an emergency grant from the government of $100 over five weeks before they get the doll check. Now, $100 will not feed and, um, you know, put a roof over someone's head for five weeks. No. Invariably, that person is in a position where they're forced to recommit a crime. Other people, um, because of their um, jail experience of becoming institutionalised, all their friends are back in the jail environment. They have learned to cope, not to like, but certainly to cope with the jail environment. And so they will deliberately recommit a crime so they can go back to an environment that they know. Yeah. Well, our house is an alternative to those choices. I was conscious of her excellent abilities in relating to supporters and potential supporters, and I think her own practical experience made her someone who could readily recognise when things were not going well in an individual's life. If you look at the people who go into prison, first of all, you've got drug addicts. This is not, in my eyes, a prison problem. It's a health problem. Then you've got the psychiatrically ill who, because they have committed um, a criminal offence, are punished. And then you've got the people who sort of just made a mistake. Now, why did people go to prison in the first place? Because of some inability to cope with stress and so that they break down and they sort of kick out at society, but they're punished. They're not helped, they're punished. Mm. I believe that the Department of Corrective Services is failing because its um, orientation by law, by damned law, is towards punishment. That's wrong. Corrective services should be aimed towards rehabilitation yep. so that when those people are released, they're better able to cope with the pressures and problems and stresses of life. What's happening now? They go into jail. The problems in jail just don't fit them for anything else. So that when they do come out, they're more emotionally wrecked than the day they went in. And what happens if they come to us? And we have to really deal with a problem that's a hundred times worse than yeah. the day that person was convicted. And then people ask you how good your record in rehabilitation. That's why I hesitated to ask the question. Mm. Yeah, well, I had the answer. You did indeed have the answer. 
there was a very active movement seeking prison reform. That's why the Royal Commission occurred in the, the 1970s. Do you think Sandra Wilson had a role in the prison reforms of the late 70s and 80s? Well, I'd say that certainly she had a symbolic role, uh, as well as the actual one of providing more appropriate aftercare for people. But symbolically, hers was one of a number of cases that, as you look out the windows of trains in Sydney, you'll still see signs on people's back fences, uh, release so-and-so, release Sandra Wilson. And I think she was one of the cases that people pushed to bring home the, uh, well, the questionable achievement of holding somebody in jail indefinitely What do you achieve after the first seven or eight years? You've achieved the moral purpose of saying that's unacceptable. But beyond that, you don't want people to come out worse than they went in. So let's concentrate on getting you back into being a productive citizen. Now, I think those ideas were around at the time. And um, insofar as we follow a flag, there are a number of flags that were flown at that time, which were celebrated cases. And uh, Sandra was certainly one of them. He used to give me roses I wish he could again If the trajectory of Sandra Wilson's story rings a bell, that might be because bits of it were used in the classic Australian TV serial, Prisoner. Hey, I forgot to tell you. We got a new nickname for you. It's our bee's idea. You know what it is? Vinegar tits. really are the most uncouth slut, Doyle. It's always better, I think, for the writers to actually sit with somebody who's lived through the experience. Producer Ian Bradley. Yes, she was one of the half-dozen inmates because she was still an inmate when we did the research, but she actually came out whilst we were in pre-production. And, in fact, that whole story of becoming the longest-serving, also the most feared in some ways of the women prisoners in New South Wales to somebody who was, by everybody, including the prison authorities, considered to be rehabilitated and going in a useful direction, gave us a whole story arc for what the show was about. So obviously she was very important to us. You can't move her. We can do anything we like, Doyle. I won't let you move her. The decision's already made. No! Doreen stays with me! What's the matter? Scared of getting lonely at nights? She was still quite damaged when uh, she came down to see us. We had to get special permission for her to come down because she was on parole and we had to get her back the same evening. And I remember at the end of the meeting I had to drive her out to the airport because we were running late and traffic across Melbourne is atrocious at five o'clock. So I decided I'd take a shortcut. And as I turned away from the sign that said airport in front of me, I noticed that she stiffened beside me and her knuckles went white. And it made me realise that it was probably the first time she'd been alone in a car, you know, in 20 years. And I don't know quite who was the more nervous. It might have been me. Was she scary? I don't know that she was scary. She was very strong. I mean, physically strong. And I guess we were all a little wary. The big plus was the fact that we had worked out this concept very much inspired by Sandra, which was everybody's a prisoner of their environment. Um, The heroes overcome that environment and the villains succumb to it. That was something I think she understood. So she was 
quite open to talking to us. My personal prospects had changed for the better. Now I had met a mature lady named Mary through the drug and alcohol network. I didn't dare tell anyone we were going together for the first six months, lest it all be a dream and the dream would explode. This now led me to a further period of adjustment, because the last time someone had left me, I had retaliated violently while being mentally depressed and unstable. This time, when Mary left me after two years together, I examined my own behaviour and recognised that I had come to take her for granted. As I grew, Mary returned and we both began growing closer together. After running Guthrie House for 14 years, Sandra Wilson handed over the reins and retired to the hills near Gympie in Queensland. Her partner Mary stayed in Sydney, but was a frequent visitor to Sandra on her rural property. Meanwhile, Sandra found friendship and a sense of belonging in a church community. My name is uh, Father Peter Strong of the Orthodox Catholic Church. I'm not Roman Catholic, goes back to Syria. And uh, I met Sandy in 1994 and uh, we began a, a friendship which lasted till her death. Tell me about her connection with your church and why she found something valuable for herself in that church. Well, first of all, she found that we were friendly to her and and accepted her for what she was and had no bias against her her lesbian uh, background. And secondly, that um, she found that we were seeking God like she was seeking God but in particular because we believed in reincarnation. And um, that was her strong belief all through her life. My belief in reincarnation helped me to reconcile my status as a worthy being with God. My spirit was a male entity incarnated in a female body this time round in order to learn certain lessons. The whole purpose of the exercise was to experience, learn and grow. Thus, my reconciliation with God was possible. My name is Kim Barrett and um, I knew Sandy in the last probably five years of her life through her connection and my connection with the Orthodox Catholic Church in Gympie. She had a tough exterior But underneath that tough exterior, there was always this very tender-hearted character. She was very soft with people or animals who were small and not able to care for themselves. And she wasn't able to kill anything, like even a cockroach. She just, everything like that, she protected. So there's this gentle interior. And what I noticed, I suppose, particularly after reading her manuscript and finding out really what what had happened in the early part of her life, which was incredibly shocking, was this character 
was a strong, tender character who, who had overcome so much hardship and so much tragedy and the lack of love, I guess. And she became this person that was full of love and was able to share that with other th things and other people. I always remember when I had found out the truth about her actually having killed someone and how long she'd spent in jail and I went home and I told Bob. His reaction was exactly the same as mine. It was, I wish we had known earlier because it just explains so many things. Mm -hmm. I remember clearly when Dad told me that he had come to terms with Uncle Rodney's death and that was about 30 years after the murder. And I think he found it in himself to have forgiveness for Sandra Wilson. Uncle Frank had also come to terms with Rodney's death and he had forgiven Sandra. Uncle Frank wanted his daughter to find Sandra Wilson and to tell her that Frank had forgiven her. But by then, Sandra Wilson was dead. Tit for Tat was produced by Catherine Frayne and engineered by Philip Ullman for Hindsight on ABC Radio National. A good reporter always has their eyes and ears open for a good story. Sandra Wilson wasn't even on Catherine Frayne's radar when she set out to do some general research about changing politics of homosexuality in Australia. When she stumbled upon the Wilson story, she knew she had found her focus. She changed tacks, pounded the pavement, found living relatives of Sandra's victim, and tit-for-tat, the story of Sandra Wilson, was born. Stumbling can be a beautiful thing. You've been listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago. I'm Gwen Maxi. This episode was produced by Katie Mingle and Dennis Funk. The program is curated by Johanna Zorn and Sarah Geis of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear more than 1,500 outstanding documentaries from around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Support for ReSound comes from Emma, a web-based email marketing and communication service helping businesses and nonprofits manage their email campaigns and online surveys in style. More at myemma.com. Support for ReSound also comes from Lula Cafe, celebrating its 15th year in Logan Square, serving sustainable food for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. More information about Lula's menu and the farms they work with is at lulacafe.com. The Third Coast International Audio Festival is a nonprofit arts organization made possible with lead funding from the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. Additional support is provided by the Agadino Foundation, the Menaki Foundation, and the National Endowment for the Arts. The Third Coast Festival is supported in part by a grant from the Illinois Arts Council Agency. Special thanks to our many individual contributors from Chicago and around the world. 
The Third Coast Festival was founded in 2000 by WBEZ Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. You can also connect with us through Facebook and Twitter. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.